I think I know. I think it's wonderful that you're doing this podcast, um, and I hope it reaches you know a lot of people and and people understand that there is there are people on the other side of the world who may look different, may dress differently, etc., may eat different things, but essentially we have a lot in common. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Hey everybody, this is uh, another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. I'm, I'm really delighted, as always, but extra delighted today um, because I have such a special guest um, where, I, well, finally we meet. We just found out after 20 years, maybe we see each other again and she will introduce herself. Marina, please go ahead. Hi, Morris. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Marina Mahadir. I think of myself mostly as a writer but I'm also an activist. I've been working on HIV AIDS and now mostly I work on women's rights, particularly Muslim women's rights in Malaysia and around the world. And yeah, you know, and, and I know you as, as an activist actually as heading the, the Malaysian AIDS Council, right? At the time. Um, That's right. But uh, yeah, t- tell, tell us a bit about, you know, I just read your book book so I know a bit about your life now more than I used to but tell tell the listeners share a little bit about how, you know where you grew up where you studied and then how you got ultimately became a, a writer and an activist well I I'm from Malaysia I grew up in a small town in the north of uh, Malaya uh, called Alosta and I lived there for most of my childhood until I was a teenager before I went off to boarding school in another state and then later on to, to England uh, to do my A-levels and subsequently uh, university. Um, I always, always wanted to write. It was my favorite subject when I was a child, English. And I always dreamed of um, writing. But I started off as a reporter with a magazine, a woman's magazine, when I came back from England. Um, I worked there for a while and then I went into public relations and, and then um, long, long story I left after I got married and went to live in Japan. But I think my work has always centered around communications and writing. And I think that helped me a lot when I became an activist. And I really became an activist by accident, pretty much. Uh, when I was in my 20s and I started work as a reporter, I didn't really know anything about uh, various issues in Malaysia. But because we were uh, doing this fundraising dinners and giving away to charity, I started to meet people who worked 
in um, NGOs and everything. And um, how I got into HIV was really by accident. Um, I knew about HIV AIDS, uh, especially when I lived in Japan. And I thought I would do something, but I only thought of fundraising because that's what I had experience in. And it so happened that one day I got invited to join the Malaysian AIDS Foundation. They said there were not enough women on the board and would I come and join. So I went along to an introduction dinner and by the end of it, they had made me chair, uh, which was a bit of a shock because I have never, never chaired anything before. But I took on the challenge and that became a journey that was eventually took me 12 years. Uh, I started in 93, 1993, and I only stepped down uh, in 2005. And I was chairman of the foundation, and then I was president of the AIDS Council, which actually did the work. Uh, it was an umbrella body for, at that time, about 18 organizations working in HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I realized that you know, it's not just a matter of fundraising. It's not just a matter of uh, raising people's awareness. It's also about making change uh, because it is some of the, the structures, the attitudes that are in place that was making it difficult uh, for us to prevent people from getting HIV. You know, a lot of stigma, a lot of prejudice, a lot of ignorance. And so I became an accidental activist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I started talking about things, you know, I saw the injustices that were happening on the ground among uh, marginalized groups, uh, among refugees, migrant workers. And I thought, this is not right. How, how do we protect all of society if we are discriminating against certain uh, sectors of society? Mm -hmm. So. I started talking and then suddenly <laughs> there I was, yeah. uh, you know, in the media saying things which uh, may not have been very popular at the time, especially with uh, the government. Mm. But there you go. It needed yeah, to be yeah. done. So, so, and you know, we have, we will go slowly to the, to the last book that you wrote, which was, you know, which is, is about yourself, but also about your relationship with your dad. Um, but so how was it for you? Because you, you, you know, you were just alluding to the fact that some of the things that maybe the government didn't like what you were doing or, you know, but you were, yeah, you, your dad was in charge of, of the country. So, so um, yeah, tell a little bit about was there the intention when you came home? How was it? Yeah, it was a bit of um, a strange situation because mm. uh, there I was, the daughter of the prime minister, and obviously, uh, when my colleagues invited me to join the foundation, that was the role that they saw me as, you know, to sort of give the foundation some sort of, I don't know, prestige, maybe. They didn't realize, and I didn't realize, um, that I could work. And that I had, you know, my own ideas of, of what needs to be done and that sort of thing. Even I didn't know. I mean, I, I really grew into it, I must say, uh, the more I learned about the, the issues related to HIV. Um, I must say that um, 
I didn't have so much problems with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I I never you know I, I never criticize him personally because you know he's the government. So I always talk about the government. And the main uh, ministry that I dealt with was the Ministry of Health, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad is a doctor, so you know he understands medical issues and all that very easily. The the things that were a bit more difficult for not just him but almost entire government to understand were the social issues related to HIV. Um, that you know we have a society that is diverse. Mm-hmm. And we're not, you know, separated from each other with high fences or anything. You know, people go in and out of different groups, which is what allows uh, HIV to also go in and out of uh, different groups. And so that that really was the battle that I had to to uh, fight. And also, we we could see what was happening in the rest of the world. Mm. And we knew it was coming. Like, for instance, women, our first cases were almost all men. There were hardly any women. But we could see it was happening in other countries. So it was going to come. But in the early days, they said to me, well, when we have a problem with women, then we'll let you know. Uh (laughs) You know, there's no such thing as, you know, prevention is better than cure. But, Uh you know, so that's why I had to speak louder and bring up these issues and call people out when they, I thought they were being you know obtuse <laughs> yeah you know in in, in the book you described uh, that you really thoroughly were preparing yourself and your team in the meeting, in a meeting with your dad, and um, so that's that. I think that's a, for me at least when I was reading it, a significant uh, point because I well maybe it was because I know how important you were for the work on on, on HIV AIDS. You know, not only in Malaysia itself, but you know, in the whole region, if not the world. Um, but um, so that particular moment in the book where you described that. Um, is for me significant in terms to understand your relationship with your dad. So, so, um, so I've, I found it fascinating because you know you are his daughter, but you, yeah, um, you have this. He was expecting a lot from you, and at least that's what I got from the book. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so maybe you can tell about how you felt when you were, 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 um, you know preparing for the meeting and then have the actual meeting because that was a i think an important moment for the work that you were doing in your and your relationship with the government and and you know to get support for uh, necessary actions after that yeah uh well like you said uh my dad expects a lot from me so he expects me to be on point you know if i'm presenting anything to him but similarly, also with anyone who's doing any presentations uh, to him, they have to be extremely well prepared because he's very, very sharp. So if he asks a question and you don't know the answer, then you're in real trouble. Um, and I've been, you know, I, in meetings before with him where it's it's a bit nerve wracking to say the least. 
So this one, because particularly I was leading it, I was leading our little group to go and meet him. We had been waiting for nine months for this meeting. Um, and, and as you can see, I didn't pull any strings to get a, a faster interview. Um, and so, you know, we really wanted to make the best of that uh, opportunity. We felt like we had only one shot to really, uh, you know, present our case and how the AIDS response needed to be better in Malaysia and all that. So mm -hmm. we had a kind of rehearsal, you know, group everybody and like, okay, you talk about this, you talk about this, you talk about this. And, um, and uh, we had that idea of bringing our secret weapon, which was a person with HIV, hmm. uh, a woman. And I, I really wanted to bring the whole issue down to a very human level uh, to my dad. Um, because to me, that's the only way. I mean, that's what convinced me uh, in the first place when I hmm. met my first HIV positive person. And I, I think if everybody did, and I've seen it happen many times and people actually meet an HIV positive person and it, it just blows apart any stereotypes they might have, um, then they change. So we brought along with us Miss um, L, uh, who, who was a teacher, you know, very ordinary young woman, who got infected by her partner and, you know, all her struggles of getting treatment, et cetera. And I think that really did it. I mean, we went there to talk about the economic impact of AIDS because I figured he would understand the economic side. I didn't have to bother with the medical side, I knew. But, you know, what it does to human resources, you know, to the workforce, but also to bring it down to a very, very human level. And I know he was, he was really surprised. You know, I, I, I noted his eyebrows went up like, oh, this is what a person with HIV looks like. Looks like just anybody, you know? And I think that really had a great impact, really mm. great impact uh, on him. And, and, you know, in a speech uh, about two weeks later, he actually talked about some of the issues that we mentioned. So, yeah. That, that was a, a pivotal moment for us. I think we were lucky, not because I had my father as PM, but we had a, a PM who understood these type of issues and was willing to listen, uh, which is not always the case. Yeah, I would like to, to go back to, you know, the beginning of the book. And, and so you ask your dad about what does mediocre mean? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I was astonished by his answer because I know what you have been doing and what you're still doing. And he said to you, you know, it's, it's like you. D did he try to make a point there to, to motivate you? Was that it? Or was that his real assessment at that time? And then the other one is what if you would ask the question now to him, what would he tell you now? Well, um, I think you have to remember that I was mm. about uh, 13, 14 mm -hmm. yeah. at that time when I asked him. And so mm -hmm. obviously at that age, you haven't really done anything. Mm -hmm. And definitely um, in school, I hadn't excelled in anything really. You know, I was not a sports person. 
not particularly academic, never won any prizes, nothing. So I had nothing to show for myself. And so I think his assessment of me at the time was probably accurate, but I think he also meant to, to spur me, you know, because it made me think, oh, I don't want to be mediocre if it means I'm, I'm not much of anything, you know? Uh, I think that was the intention, but I remember it so well that, you know, yeah. to this day, uh, 50 years later, I still remember it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess if he looked at me now, he would grudgingly admit that I, I may have made something <laughs> out of my life. <laughs> mm. um, you know, people always come to me and say, what is it like to be Dr. M's daughter? And which is why I wrote the book. The book mm -hmm. is called yeah. The Apple and the Tree. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been dying for someone to go and ask him, what is it like to be Marina's father? Mm. <laughs> that would be a nice change. But I do have a funny story that I was in Geneva for the Big Bull AIDS conference and I was on a panel um, talking about the, I think it was the economic impact of AIDS or something. And the, the moderator was Justice Edwin Cameron from South Africa. And you know how, you know, judges are so good at summarizing at the end of it. And you also know that in the AIDS world, it is very safe to call everybody doctor because they're either a medical doctor or a scientist or a PhD or mm -hmm. something. It's safe. If you don't really know them, just call them doctor. So Justice Cameron was summarizing and he kept saying, and Dr. Mahadir said this and Dr. Mahadir said that. And I was listening to him and thinking, when did dad say that? And then I realized, no, he's talking about me. I'm Dr. Mahadir, you know? <laughs> so I came... So I came home and told my dad, you're not the only Dr. Mahadir in the world, you know. <laughs> so, so, um, and he was funny. like, oh, eyebrows shot up, like, what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah. So I think, um, you know, he, he, um, he has said some nice things about me lately. He's also got a book out mm. and he sort of credited me for pushing him in some areas and and uh you know giving him some advice mm -hmm. <laughs> although at the time i didn't think he listened to me but yeah it's nice to know later on <laughs> great marina why um because i was you know this is your fourth book right um yes. I was I was thinking when I was reading it, and I was like, "Why didn't you write this book earlier in your in your life?" Well, um, I think lack of confidence, really. Mm. You know, my my previous books were all compilations of my column. Mm -hmm. I've been writing in the Star newspaper for well over thirty years, yeah. and so I had a lot of uh, columns, and where we compiled them into three books. Mm -hmm. And that was okay. I, I thought that was a bit too easy. Um, and I was writing columns which were very short, 800 words, 1,200 words. And I wasn't very satisfied with it. And I really, really wanted to know how to write long form, how to write a long book. You know, I really admire people mm. who write books of, you know, 300 pages or whatever. And so 
I, I, I always talk to authors and say, how do you do that? How do you do that? Mm -hmm. And they tell me, but you know, it's, it's unless you really experience it, I think you don't really know. So I actually decided to go and take a course um, after 40, 40 years after my undergrad, I, I took a, a master's in creative writing in the UK and learned how to write a book. So that's, that's really why. Um, partly also because all this time I thought, I, oh, I, to write a book, I need to sit down quietly somewhere, go away somewhere. And all these excuses, actually they're all excuses. And um, so finally, I went for this course. And after that, I got really, you know, motivated. I was writing bits and pieces, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then by chance, uh, Penguin uh, contacted me and said, would you like to write a book for us? We want you to write about the experience of being your father's daughter. And I thought, perfect. <laughs> and so yeah. that was it. And uh, that's how the book came out. It's, it's partly the stars were aligned mm -hmm. correctly, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely can, you know, recommend it to uh, yeah, anybody who, I, I, I think it's really well written. Yeah. So, so a lot of kudos, kudos for that. Um, Thank you. What, what do you hope that people uh, get from the book? you know well after reading what what do you hope well firstly like i hope they they think oh she can write mm -hmm. <laughs> secondly i think um i i think when people in my position in public figures and all that people think that what they read in the papers is everything you know that they know everything about us uh mm -hmm. just from from the media and I wanted to bring it down to a more human level that we are human beings and we have a lot of the same issues that anybody would have in their families and, and in everyday life. Undoubtedly, I've had a very privileged life, mm. um, though not from childhood exactly. Um, a lot of people keep asking me, what was it like growing up as the prime minister's daughter? And I had to remind them, that my father became prime minister when I was 24 and I was a full grown adult already. Mm -hmm. So my, my childhood was quite ordinary like, like most people and we had no inkling, none whatsoever that he was going to end up where he did. And for so long. Um, also, I think that, you know, it's an experience that needs to be talked about because mm -hmm. it's pretty unique. I mean, we've had, um, eight prime ministers now I think um and but my dad was there the longest 22 yeah. years plus another two which meant that his family were also there longest mm. and had to put up with you know having to share him with the nation having to be in the public eye plus the fact that I also carved my own space mm. in the public arena right um so that I thought that I had a story to tell and I, I wanted to tell it. I, I didn't tell everything because there was just too much, mm. you know, that I had, I had to leave out. I just put in things that moved the story along. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's been an incredible life. I'm very grateful for it. 
um but you know i just wanted to to share it really mm. yeah so can we we can expect a second book if you still have a lot of additional information <laughs> i don't know i don't know i'm thinking i'm thinking i, I mm. don't want to be just writing about me all the time mm. um i'm thinking of possibly a novel fiction okay. because it was so hard to write non-fiction you know non-fiction mm. has to be real and mm. true um and fiction you can get away with inventing some things you know so i'm thinking about it but I, I, let me get over this one first I explained to you, you know, how this podcast came about as a result of, of uh, me walking 100 miles in a week, 15 to 20 miles per day. Uh, today's, you know, awareness about hunger, poverty and injustice. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles in, uh, in a week, for which cause would you, you know, do it? Uh, I think definitely uh, against violence against women. Because there's so many issues to talk about, uh, child marriage, sexual harassment, all those things. Those are issues that we are fighting uh, for here in Malaysia. And I think it's it's also something that's still being fought all over the world. I think I, I would I would do that for, for that cause, yeah. You know, when, when I walk, uh, with with people during those um, events, we often talk about you know life, what drives you, and then very actually quickly, religion and spirituality come up. Um, mm. And and uh, what I'm fascinated with is is uh, the conversations then uh, you know turn into what do you see within your environment uh, happening with the younger generation? How do they uh, do they still are they still religious are they still spiritual so if i ask you what do you see among you know the younger generation in your community what do you see is that and is that the similar to when you grew up is it different uh, can you a little bit reflect on that it's it's quite different actually um I, I find that there are two groups of young people that i see nowadays one is the group that is very aware uh, very what they call woke nowadays and um, they they want to do something they want to do something about the environment they want to do something about discrimination they want to do all sorts of things changing politics for example and they've been quite effective for instance we've now managed to lower the voting age to 18 uh, from 21 uh, where it has been for 60 years and that's totally the work of young people in this country. And, it, and it's mm. great. It's going to change the political landscape, I think. So there's a lot of them. And when it comes to spirituality, I think a lot of them are less interested in organized religion, but more interested mm. in expressing spirituality in other ways. For example, in charity, in helping others, in um, protecting the environment, that sort of thing. Like we've had terrible floods recently. Mm. You might have heard horrible, horrible. We've never had such bad floods. 
And really, it's been the young people mobilized so quickly to go out and help people, you know, food and things and rescuing people on boats and whatever. Uh, it's been them. So that's really one group of, of young people that I see. But there's also another group, and I think this is the result of our education system, which has been very, very, um, you know, the type that you just listen, you don't ask questions, you don't ask difficult questions, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole generation, several generations of um, young people who've just been taught to, to um, obey and follow and don't question. And then those become very, very conservative. And so that's, that's kind of worrying, especially it's very male um, and the attitudes towards uh, women is not very, very positive at all. Um, they feel defensive, etc. Whereas our young women, you know, they're more, women in the universities than they are men and they're going out there and they're being entrepreneurs and everything and they're doing great. And so I think we're setting up for a, a kind of a, a clash, a gender clash soon if, if we don't change things mm. uh, and make everyone feel secure and safe, you know? Mm. So yeah, I am... I, this is what I see right now, and I don't know which group will win out. I'm hoping mm. for the more progressive group, obviously. Mm. Yeah. And and is that something that um, is typically for you know happening in Malaysia, or uh, because I you know you, you also are still still often going to Indonesia, so maybe you have observations what's happening there and other countries. Is this so? My question is: Is it do you think it's typical what you just described? Is that typically Malaysia or do you see it happening in other countries as well? Um, well, I think I'm describing mostly Malaysia. Mm -hmm. uh, Indonesia is um, nearby, but not entirely the same. Uh, partly because um, I don't think religion has been politicized as much as it has been in Malaysia. Um, in Indonesia, it's coming though, um, and I would put outside influences as uh, the the source of it. But over there, people seem to be more open, um, and they are, and partly because they're people, you know, Indonesians, although the majority are Muslims, they also have substantial numbers of Christians and everything, and because they all look the same. You can't tell who is who uh, unless you really know. So in one family, you could have a whole mixture of different religions. Whereas in Malaysia, religion is very much tied to, to race. And that is a big problem. And the politicians, unfortunately, have been using this race-religion thing um, to, to really stir up things in Malaysia. I mean, I think if you walk every day around the country, people are not bothered. People are not bothered. We are so used to living in this multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multicultural society that we are, we are not really fussed about a lot of things. Um, I was just in Langkawi Island for a holiday and I was sitting 
in a restaurant on the beach watching the sunset and you see girls in bikinis next to girls in the hijab and you know the girls in bikinis are drinking beers the girls in hijab are drinking orange juice and nobody bothers right nobody bothers everyone is fine mm. but if you talk to a politician it's like oh this is terrible and you know mm. um so it's it's really whether our people have more sense than the politicians really mm. which i think generally i think they do and and we've seen the failure of uh the politicians when it comes to disasters like the floods it's the mm. people who've mobilized and not not our so called leaders um because if all their capital is about race and religion it doesn't help mm. when your house is flooded right it doesn't yeah. and and you can't sort of decide i'll only help this house and not that house it it really makes you look terrible so yeah so i think um i that's malaysia has this problem mm-hmm. and it's very up and down but you know we have survived 64 years and i'm fairly optimistic with the young people coming in um taking leadership roles uh i'm optimistic that it it will change it will really change there are several things that that worry you but my question is what worries you most at the moment that's happening in the world in the world i mm-hmm. i think it's um a lack of uh sensible and rational leadership in so mm-hmm. many countries i don't know why people don't listen to science um you know in in managing the pandemic particularly in just doing the sensible thing um I have to say that in Malaysia despite the the poor leadership that we've had there have been sensible voices and we have you know despite a slow start we have had um management of the pandemic that's been quite good we now have something like 98% of adults vaccinated i got my booster yesterday in fact um and everyone goes around in masks uh there's no not wearing masks everyone just does it's become normal and we're now into fashionable masks and mm-hmm. and things like that um so it's it's become normalized so um and i think that's how our numbers are slowly going down um and we're not afraid to to clamp down on things for instance because of this omicron we found that uh pilgrims who went to mecca for the umrah for the the little uh pilgrimage have come back with omicron so the government has just said okay no more going for that right now because for the safety of everyone and and that i think is the sensible and rational thing to to do so i i don't know i think in malaysia we're still concerned about the community as a whole and so we will do whatever to help the whole community you know um and that that's what worries me um mm. my daughter is going back to the uk and to ireland soon and and i i feel 
um, very worried. Uh, although I know she's very, very sensible and she's got all her shots and everything, but it, it is worrying because all her friends have got COVID. All her friends. Where do I still see hope? I, I do believe in uh, young people, as I said, mm. but particularly young women. Um, I think... You know, you see female leadership in so many areas and, and they're doing very well from Jacinda Ardern in, in uh, New Zealand to Greta Thunberg to Malala. Um, and I see some young women here who are leading businesses and NGOs and everything. And that's where I see hope, really. Um, they're more motivated. They're more uh community-minded they're more detailed and you know they're, they're very sensitive to everything and they want to you know make sure everyone's okay so i think that's the hope for the future <laughs> that's great that's great to hear um you know my, my organization uh, celebrated its 75th anniversary in 2021 and so you know it's also a time we use that to reflect on what did we do well and what not and a big topic for, well, we are a U.S. organization, but I think it's relevant for all organizations, is uh, racial justice and how did we do? So if I ask you um, to give a, a grade to the NGO sector as a whole, um, how did the NGO sector do around racial justice or racial injustice, according to you? And I know it's difficult to generalize but I'm going to ask you it anyway to, you know, kind of reflect on that. Well, I, I can really only speak uh, about Malaysia. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say that, you know, racial equality, racial justice is a big issue here in Malaysia. Maybe not quite in the same way as, as in the U.S., but yeah, we are talking about um, structural injustices, etc., and really, it's been the NGO sector that has brought up the issues, really, um, more than the, the government side. Uh, although there are um, some NGOs that are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like in the U.S. also, um, affirming the uh, supremacist uh, idea of, of things. But I think we've been pushing along things quite a while, particularly for the um, Orang Asli, the Aboriginal uh, peoples, the indigenous people, um, for uh, our, uh, our different communities in, uh, in Borneo, and also for our three major groups, which is Malay, Chinese, and Indians, um, who make up the main uh, ethnic groups in, in Malaysia. And I think people now are really tired of all these divisions and are really beginning to understand that it's not a zero-sum game, you know, that everybody should benefit and everybody can benefit from more justice. It's very clear that we are seeing there are groups of people who are dying in police custody more than others. There are um people who are getting arrested more there are people who are you know um 
getting uh, you know less places in universities despite having the right qualifications or the, and it, it works all around yeah it's not just the you know one-sided um you know that there, there are people who say they'll only take intendants who speak a certain language and that sort of thing so there's a lot of work to be done but i think the key to it is to actually talk about it and we've had for a long, long time um, an understanding, I guess, that we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. That we, we, because it's too sensitive. And I've always said that there's nothing that is too sensitive. It's just whether you have a sensitive approach to it or not. Mm. And, and that's the way to handle things. I think we need to have things come out in the open to to deal with them and that's the challenge for us in Malaysia right now and I think it's the NGOs that are pushing it even from the even from the um, the other side the right wing side of it mm -hmm. because they are making so much noise then they actually help to raise the issue too uh, and um, and that's good they, they haven't managed to put a lid on it that that's the point yeah. Okay, great. No, and I, I really resonate with what you said. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I have this pod, podcast, it's called Walk, Talk, Listen, right? And I, I really believe that that uh, listening is, is uh, we, we, we do need to do more listening, uh, first of all. Yeah. Um, and then you often see that, you know, nobody... Uh, can be wrong all the time so there is always yeah. you know a start where you can start a dialogue and that's could be beginning of understanding and, and and peace so i um yeah no thank you for for sharing that um yeah i would like to talk about music because that's so uh close to my heart um and the question that i always ask is if i ask you to name a piece of music or a song that best embodies what you are about, what song or piece of music would that be and why? Oh gosh, that's really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much music out there. I don't know. But I must say, I've just been watching this documentary on the Beatles mm -hmm. um, called Get Back, uh, how they recorded this album. And I, I was really, you know, I, I never thought I was a big fan, but when I when I watched it, I had a real appreciation of the process of music making. Yeah. And I really love the story behind Let It Be. Mm. That, you know, that sometimes if you are fussing and, you know, working yourself up over small things, it actually doesn't help anyone, least of all you. So there are many things that you can just let it be and um, and work on the really important things in life. So I guess at the moment, the song that I can think of is Let mm -hmm. It Be by the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do agree with you. People should check out that documentary about, it's called uh, Get Back. It's eight Get hours, back. but it's really worthwhile, yes. you know, listening and and. Yeah, see the dynamics between you know the, all the four band members and 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 the other people who are involved as well. So um, yeah. and then the music is 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 great and how the different songs develop uh, as well. 
Marina, you know, I'm very passionate about talking about the 17 sustainable development goals. They might not be perfect, but I at least they, you know, as a world, we set some goals. If I ask you to um, to say something about the sustainable development goals, yeah, what 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 is it that you would like to share? You know, about you know, lift up one specific goal or anything in relation to the SDGs. Well, of course, uh, in the work that I do, which is mm-hmm. women's rights, we have mainly been focused on SDG 5, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about women's rights. And, and um, I don't, I'm not sure there's as much consciousness as there needs to be about SDGs here in mm-hmm. Malaysia, but certainly among um, NGOs and, and even some government agencies, um, there is plenty. And, and SDG 5 gives us some aspirations that we would like to achieve. So we've been working hard on particularly on ending child marriage and raising the age of marriage. Um, a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance. Um, recently, the, the Minister for Religion, which means Islamic religion, said there's no need to raise it beyond what it is now, which is 16 for women. Mm. Um, and uh, that's disappointing. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, and also, you know, with the COVID pandemic, actually, you know, we've seen an uptick in um, young marriages, child marriages, and, and that sort of thing as a way of solving some of the economic problems that have arisen because of it. Uh, we're also working on sexual harassment. There's been a bill uh, that's supposed to be tabled in parliament. It was in, it was originally tabled in the government that won in 2018, the one that my father led. And then of course the government fell in 2020 and that's, they've gone silent, but they said that they're going to table it in the next parliament sitting. So we shall see how far it goes, but I know that NGOs are a little disappointed with what they've seen of the draft, that a lot of things that they wanted are not in it. And there's still, you know, a lot of other things that, that need to be done. I am part of a group called Sisters in Islam. We work on um, laws and policies that particularly affect Muslim women uh, in personal laws, marriage, divorce, inheritance, guardianship, that sort of thing. We've had one victory, I must say, um, recently that uh, for all Malaysian women, previously Malaysian women who are married to non-Malaysians and had their children overseas could not pass their citizenship to their children, which has caused a lot of hardship for women who are say widowed or divorced and want to come back and live in Malaysia with their children. Uh, that's been a real problem. And, and uh, this group of women took, uh, took the government to court um, and said it was unconstitutional and they, they won. Uh, wow. And wow. Uh, the government is appealing. I don't know why. It's such a silly thing to appeal. Uh, but the court has been uh, reaffirming and reaffirming the right of this mother. So that is one major victory in 2021, yeah. which is great. It's a bit late for me because I have uh, a half French child who was born 
uh, overseas in Japan. Mm. So she she's not Malaysian. Um, but it's okay. It's okay. It's not just mm. about me. It's, it's really about all these other women. Yeah. And you know, with the world being so global now, people traveling, you're, you're going to marry someone from another country and you're likely to have children born overseas. So this is a very fundamental right mm. that, that we should have because the men have it. Men can have their children anywhere in the world. They can pass on their citizenship to their kids, but we can't. So this was great. So one highlight for 2021. And I think the right to citizenship, it's also child rights and everything. So we're very happy about that. Great. Yeah. So that's SDG 5. You know, you you start. I don't know how many years ago was it. Six years ago, did you started uh, the website? Um, you know, where you focus on traveling of women, and then you yes, also have book, uh, a podcast around uh, books you read, right? Yeah, yes. six years ago. Uh, 2014, we started. It's called okay. zafigo.com. Yeah. Okay, I will um, make sure that you make a link to to it in the in the podcast notes. What I wanted to you. ask you about is. Um, because you host a podcast yourself as well, where you talk about books. And so the yeah. question that I have for you is, you know, what is the book that people should definitely read in 2022? Oh, outside of your book, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hard because there's mm. so many books. Uh, I, I I don't think it has to be a new book, but um, I mean, I can talk about some of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the two books that I always mention because I, I just love them. And funnily enough, they are both about uh, women and their fathers. Okay. Um, one, one is educated by Tara Westover, which was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is a book called Dadland. Uh, by Keji Karu, who talked about her father who was um, in Force 136, which was the special forces during World War II, uh, who went into Burma to help Mm. the Burmese against the Japanese. We had Force 136 in Malaya too. And I, I think both books fascinated me about, you know, father-daughter relationships and how sometimes it's very, very difficult and what do you need to overcome it. And and particularly for Tara Westover, you know, and this strange family that she grew up with um, and, and not going to school and not really being educated, but somehow that desire to learn uh, was so strong that, you know, spoiler alert, she got a PhD. Um, but you know, this sort of, you can see her journey as she learned more and what it, what it revealed about her own family and, and things like that. And Keji Karu is very interesting because she's telling it from, from the present, dealing with a father who has dementia and finding out about his past, which he never talked about and the contrast between his adventurous past and his current you know where he's he's really losing losing it um so 
if you've never read these two, please do, because I think they're great. <laughs> and I'm sure they'll be great books. So my last question uh, to you is, do you have a message, an invitation, or a question for the listeners? I, uh, you know, th there's a talk I like to give when I, when I go to schools and talk to school children, which is, the world is big, the world is small. And I don't know whether adults even understand that, you know, that Yeah, the world is huge. There are all sorts of people in the world. We have so much diversity, so much culture, different cultures, different ideas, uh, different norms and everything everywhere in the world. We need to understand that, that diversity and that diversity is not a bad thing. On the other hand, the world is small because we are so connected um, these days and And there's so much that we have in common. We're actually watching the same things, listening the same to the same things, reading the same things. And our ideas are the same. I mean, you know, you go into the deepest part of Malaysia and, and you know, people have heard about Beyonce, uh, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, whoever. I'm sure they even didn't expect that. So... I, and it's not just on that pop culture basis. I think um, mothers all over the world, for instance, want the best for their children, uh, want their children to grow up to be confident, you know, solid human beings who, you know, have good judgment, that sort of thing. So we have all these things in common. And I think we need to be able to talk about these common things while we are appreciating the diversity. So I think, I know, I think it's wonderful that you're doing this podcast um, and I hope it reaches, you know, a lot of people and, and people understand that there is, there are people on the other side of the world who may look different, may dress differently, etc., may eat different things, but Essentially, we have a lot in common. Yeah, that's Great. my message, I guess. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for you know your willingness to talk with me today and to share your knowledge and experiences. I really invite people to check out your new book. Um, thank you. Yeah, and and you know, uh, thank you for everything you you do, and 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 good luck. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Morris. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's the same. Sama sama, you say, right? So that's right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.